Welcome to Christ for the Islands, a podcast about theology and ministry geared towards those living and serving in churches throughout the Pacific Islands, though we still hope that our talks will equip and encourage the saints wherever they may be located, because we are ultimately talking about divine truth, which is applicable to all people, for all times, and in all places. My name is David Larson, and I'll be your host. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey guys, thanks for joining in to listen to the first full episode of Christ for the Islands. Today I'm joined by Father Mark Bryans. Mark is a super sharp and godly man. Um, I think just about every time I've hung out with Mark, I'm humbled by him and will come away having learned a ton. And as such, I'm super excited to let you all get an opportunity to learn from him as well. So Mark, thanks for coming on the podcast today. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, uh, good to be here. humbled by the introduction, not sure I deserve those nice words, but grateful to be with you. So he's sharp, godly, and humble. There you go. Um, <laughs> so so uh, one of, I'll, I'll let you introduce yourself um, within this context. One of the goals of this podcast is to have it be a bit more geared towards um, ministry and theology in, for churches in the Hawaiian Islands uh, and also the Pacific Islands. Um we, we also want to edify saints on the mainland, giving those on the mainland a glimpse of what ministry is like in the islands. And as such, would you just give us a quick um, autobiographical sketch of how long you and your family have lived here in Hawaii and what ministry roles you're currently serving in? Yeah. Uh, so my I was born... Um, uh, and in an unnamed big state on the West Coast that I, I don't personally like to identify with. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, born and raised in California. My dad was a pastor. Uh, he was on staff with Chuck Swindoll at, like, the like sort of OG EV Free and then took a job at an SBC church, kind of a pre-molar SBC church in Arizona. And then he left that place to go and plant a non-denominational church in Tucson, Arizona. And then we moved here when I was a kid. So we moved here my freshman year of high school. Uh, and so, um, I, uh, I get to answer the question, right? You're like, Hey bro, where are you grad from? And I'm like, Oh, Kaiser high school. Right. So I went to, I went to high school here locally, learned how to drive here. That's why friends of mine and family of mine on the mainland don't let me drive when I go back and visit the mainland. Right. So like, bro, you drive like you're from Hawaii and I wear that as a badge of honor. And, uh, when we moved out here, uh, our, my family, uh, my dad had left ministry in Arizona. Our plan was to sort of um, slowly sort of transition to doing field work uh, on the mission field in Southeast Asia. Um, and we moved here, and the Lord, through a couple of different circumstances, pretty clearly closed the doors on us doing that. So we ended up staying here, putting down roots. My dad uh, started working as like a general manager in a construction company here. I went to Kaiser High School. My brothers went to Kaiser. And then I stayed and went to... Um, undergraduate and then did grad school at HPU, Hawaii Pacific University. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's kind of generally my story here. My wife and I, uh, we were good friends for three and a half, four years. Uh, we met at HPU. Uh, we got married and then we um, found ourselves together even before dating, kind of on a journey of discerning um, yeah, sort of finding ourselves on what people now call like the Canterbury Trail 
which is just a way to describe people that dis rediscover Anglicanism, people from evangelical or charismatic or reformed backgrounds that sort of rediscover Anglicanism. That sounds very nice and scholarly. For a lot of us, that means we turn over the back of one of our C.S. Lewis books and go, where did C.S. Lewis go to school? Or, where, you know, where did he go to school? Okay, where did he go to church? We start looking at his life and we realize, oh my gosh, he was Anglican the whole time. And, you know, nobody told us. And we've tried to figure out what Anglicanism means. And Anglicanism has a broken and checkered history. Um, but my wife and I found ourselves at an Anglican church on the east side. And then we recently planted, um, about four and a half years ago, um, June of 2019, so... Um, just six or seven months before COVID, we planted, a, led a little church plant team in downtown Honolulu, planting a church called All Saints, where I'm the head pastor now. And by head pastor, you mean rector. Yeah, so we have fun terms in Anglicanism to describe different jobs. Uh, head pastor, in Anglicanism, we call that the rector, which just means teacher in Latin. Um, but yeah, so I'd be, the, I'd be the teaching elder or the head pastor at All Saints. One of the things that I've learned about Anglicanism and your tradition, um, what, one of the things that I actually want to implement more in my life is the recognition and some sort of practice of following the church calendar. Um, currently, we're actually recording this episode in Advent season, but I'm hoping this will be posted just before Epiphany. Now, I'm expecting that not all of our listeners are thoroughly familiar with Epiphany. So could you just tell us a little bit about what Epiphany is and what we're celebrating on it? Yeah. Yeah, maybe I'll begin by sort of posing it like a, as if I was a kind of salesman for churches of any tradition, right? So Baptistic or Presbyterian or any kind of Christian tradition to recover Epiphany as a, as a specific season. Um, we all kind of do Advent-ish. We know what it's like in one way or another to build up to Christmas. I mean, Christmas is this big day, right? And it's so big culturally that even people who don't show up to the church for the rest of the year, right? People that are otherwise hard-hearted and cold to the gospel of Jesus get out of their houses and go to a church on Christmas Day, because for no other reason the fact that it is the birth of Jesus, right, is amazing. And then, if my experience growing up in a non-Anglican tradition is at all like other people who are not Anglicans' experience of tradition, December 26th hits us in a weird way, right? What do we do now? Maybe there's New Year's, right? So we have like New Year's Eve or something. It's like a party. But it's not really religious. Like, what, what do we do now? And then we just kind of stumble into the new year. Some of us have taken uh, sort of like New Year's resolutions or something. Uh, but the big question is, like, what do we do now? What do we have to look forward to? Well, I guess we'll just wait and look forward to Easter sometime in March or April. Epiphany sort of fills in that space. It answers the question, what are we supposed to do now? Now that the Savior has been born to us. What do we do, right? And uh, Epiphany sort of maps the time between the birth of Jesus and his suffering, death, and resurrection during Holy Week before Easter. Um, Jesus did not come down to earth on Christmas as a 33-year-old man, minister for four months, and then die, right? Jesus came and he did this really miraculous thing, which was live a perfect life for 33 years. 
and he ministered to us, and we beheld his glory. Um, you know, think of the way that John describes it. We who our hands have handled, right? This is the one that we know. He came and lived among us, really lived among us. And so Epiphany is this season uh, between the 12 days of Christmas, which Christmas is the first of. So in the liturgical calendar, we have Christmas begins on the 25th. It lasts for 12 days. And then we have the Feast of Epiphany, um, which is a, is a big, we usually have bonfires. We burn our uh, Christmas branches and wreaths and Christmas trees. This big fire, and we proclaim that the Christ who was born to us in Christmas has come to be a light to the nations. And we celebrate, we put sort of three events together, and we celebrate them on the Feast of Epiphany, January 6th. That's the wise men coming uh, when Jesus was about two to uh, recognize him not only as the king of the Jews, though he is that, right? He is the king of Israel, but he's also the king of all the nations. He's the king of kings. And so kings from the east come and recognize him as their Lord too. We also celebrate his baptism in the Jordan. Uh, Jesus is revealed, Epiphany, he's revealed not only to be a king, not only to be a messianic figure, uh, but to be the capital M Messiah. Um, the Father breaks out of heaven at the Jordan, right? And the Spirit descends on him, and the Father says, this is my beloved Son, right? We celebrate that. That's an epiphany. And then the, the sort of third epiphany that we, and we do all these readings on January 6th, the third sort of epiphany reading is from John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana, where the first of his signs, the first of his wonders, is that he turns water into wine. He comes and turns the, the law, right? The jars were... Um, Jewish regulation vessels for ritual washing. He turns the law into wine, just like he's come to write the law of God, no longer on stony tablets, but on hearts of flesh, right? He comes to glorify. Uh, and then Epiphany is the season up until we start Lent, where we celebrate the ministry of Jesus, the manhood of Jesus, um, Jesus's ministry among us. And um, the way I describe it to people is some things are mysterious because they're shouted and obscure, shadowed, and obscure, right? They're clouded, they're dark, they're mysterious. Sinai. Um, epiphany is mysterious, not because it's cloudy and dark, but, but, but because it's so bright and so obvious that it's hard to look at it directly, right? Jesus, what Jesus does and comes to be is so bright and so obvious, and yet we miss it not because it's dark and shadowy, but because it's so bright, it's almost hard to look at directly. I mean, one of the things that we're talking about is feasting. And you referred to, was it the, the Feast of Epiphany, yeah. right? And so what, what do you mean by Feast of Epiphany? I think like a lot of, at least from my tradition that I'm coming yeah. from, is well, lower church, yeah. a feast is potluck after Sunday service sure. in the quote-unquote fellowship hall, right? Yeah, yeah. So what do you mean by Feast of Epiphany? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. Um. So, the date first, Epiphany, um, we celebrate, we tend to celebrate it in one of two ways. We either celebrate it on January 6th, which is the day of Epiphany, or we celebrate the, the Eve. Like a lot of people celebrate Christmas Eve, and then not a lot of people, I imagine from your tradition, go to church on Christmas Day, right? So we can also celebrate the Eve of something um, just as much as the day of. And so Epiphany Eve, um, we call it Twelfth Night uh, you can think of Shakespeare's great play, Twelfth Night. It's about crazy things that happen on the eve of the Feast of Epiphany. Um, 
for us, feasting means a couple of things. It means more than just food. And it means more than just food, not only in a quantitative sense, right? So it's not just food, and it's not just much food, right? It's not, it doesn't become a feast by the amount of food you have. Um, you, you read some of the stories by guys like Richard Wurmbrand or other people that were in prison for the faith, especially during Nazi and Soviet regimes, who would be sent a cake or would be sent little wafers for communion, and they would, they would break out and have a feast. But what they're feasting on is actually less food than most of us eat at lunchtime. Um, and so a feast is not merely about the quantity of food. Though, if you come to a feast at All Saints, we'll have plenty of food. Um, but it is more so, about... So you're saying that's an open invitation. It's an open invitation. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Um, but feasting is more about the way in which food is eaten uh, and the things that are done around the eating of food. Um, and so for us, a feast is where we dedicate a day to, in the broadest sense, to rejoice and celebrate and make merry because a certain thing is being remembered from the story of Jesus, right? Or from God, the story of God's people. And so on the Feast of Epiphany, we say this day, or at our church, we celebrate Twelfth Night most of the time. On this day, something wondrous happened in God's story or in the story of God's people. And we're going to gather together and we're going to eat in a unique and peculiar way where our eating is dedicated to keeping the story in a, in a certain fashion. And then we'll have fun and we'll have, well, we have games and we um, have different sort of activities, right? We bake, we bake a, an epiphany cake where we, we bury a little image of Jesus in the manger inside of the king's cake. And uh, we cut up the cake and all the kids eat it. And whoever, whichever kid gets the king, the king, uh, the Jesus doll, right? Um, gets to be king for the night or queen for the night, and then they get to make certain rules about how anybody that goes in the front door must only exit out the back door, right? All these sort of fun, topsy-turvy rules. Um, so we do certain activities, and then we have a time of worship and prayer. So a feast is also marked by worship and prayer. And in that aspect, even if you're not involved in the liturgical life, we do know what it's like to have secular feasts. On the 4th of July, we get together as Americans and we eat food in a particular, we eat particular food for a particular purpose and we remember a particular story and then we usually do some, some, some kind of solemnity to remember something, to honor something. Um, and Christian feasting is just that, but it's done for the glory of God. Um, and then we do dancing and have games and um, celebrate, yeah. Yeah, and I think you answered uh, a question that I had uh, later on. Um, j just, I mean, and if you could just parse it out again, just so that we're clear, um, what is the difference between feasting and gluttony? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, anybody who feasts should always make sure their feasting is done unto the Lord and that it doesn't become an excuse for uh, gluttony. I mean, Paul's letter... Some of Paul's words in the letters to the Corinthians are about this exactly. When you come together, you're just, you know, scarfing down food. Um, but I think we often tend to think of gluttony um, in our health-crazed contemporary America. Gluttony strictly as just eating too much food, right? Um, or gluttony as eating rich food or something. Um, gluttony is 
bigger than that. Gluttony names the practice of eating unto oneself. So, for instance, in a lot of like old monastic rules, they they would forbid you from what they called private eating, which was eating by yourself. Um, you had to eat with others, eating for them. And you, I'm not a monk. You're not a monk. We don't have to hold these rules, right? But it's informative to the way that Christians have understood what gluttony is. Gluttony is about taking food and saying, "This belongs to me for me," right? And if I open up the fridge and I see, you know, a Coca-Cola, and I say, "Man, it's been a hard day." I deserve this. I need this. That, that's an act of gluttony. And if my wife prepares a glorious breakfast for us because it's my birthday, and I say, you know what, Rachel? No thanks to the food you've served for me. I'd rather just have one good piece of toast and a cup of coffee. That also is a form of gluttony. It's a denying of, to sorrow over um, the body. It's a sorrow over eating with others for the glory of God. Um, you can think of all of the sort of seven deadly sins can be traced back to our fall. And there's a reason why gluttony, you, you know, you, we can be confused. Like sort of like if you think about the seven deadly sins, you go pride. Wow. Yeah, that really is a massive sin. Lust. Oh, man, our culture is dying because of it. That's a massive sin. Oh, rage. Oh, my gosh. Yes. You know, these sort of rural spirituals. And then we see something like gluttony. And it's like, wait, why is this? Why is this up there with pride and rage and lust? In the beginning, God laid the world as a feast. And he invited Adam and Eve into his feast. And set parameters on the way that they were to feast in his world. And Adam and Eve said, no thanks to your feast, God. We're going to eat with the serpent instead. So eating already lies... In our very fall, eating is a part of it. Um, and Yahweh, all throughout the Old Testament, is constantly inviting his people to eat with him. First thing Noah does when he gets off the ark is lay a table before the Lord. When the three visitors come to Abraham, Abraham runs to his tent and says, prepare a, prepare a feast for them. Um, when Jesus comes down, the Pharisees say, all you do is eat and drink with sinners. And there's a bit where Jesus says, you get the sense reading Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees. Yeah. He does that because that's what Yahweh has always done. When he meets Zacchaeus, he says, Zacchaeus, I'm going to come to your house for a Bible study today. No. Zacchaeus, and I will come and eat in your house today. Uh, he's always inviting us to his feast. On the night that he's betrayed, Jesus, among all the other maybe important things he could have done on the night that he's betrayed, Jesus says, prepare a room for me to celebrate a meal with my disciples. And um, so gluttony names the sin in our hearts that wants to eat for ourselves and not with others and not unto the Lord. And so that's the difference. So you, you could eat nothing. Oh, I know it's Christmas, but I'm, I'm on a diet. Okay, that might be a form of gluttony right there, right? Um, no, I just, I don't care for turkey, right? That might be a form of gluttony too. Oh my gosh, you just ate and drank so much that you're throwing up. That seems like gluttony, right? All, both of these, even though they seem like opposites, are the same. They're eating for themselves and not to share in fellowship with God's people. Yeah, so I'd say that's the brief difference. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, you, you walk through some examples. Uh, I, I, 
I remember hearing one time, um, and I'm sure you're very well aware of it, you're already walking through it, but um, salvation history um, or the story of the Bible could just be summarized as feasting with God. You talked about um, Adam and Eve, uh, right? They've, they've been given everything and uh, they just can't eat from this one tree. And then they're rejected. As you, as you said, you know, they were invited to a feast with God and they chose to eat with the serpent instead. Um, could you just like walk us through um, other biblical examples of such feasts? I know you talked about um, Abraham and uh, Jesus, but could, could you just walk us through some other examples of biblical feasts? Yeah. Um, I mean, in, in the beginning, one thing to understand is that God's world is laid in feasting. And in fasting, right? So, like, feasting and fasting aren't these uh, sort of mutually opposing, antipathetic things. Uh, God creates the world, and he creates the world full of food, and he gives to Adam every tree. We're told pretty clearly God God created every tree, and that's repeated in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2. God creates every tree, and they're good, and he gives them to Adam for food. Every tree of the garden I give to you to be for food. And then God says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're not supposed to eat. Okay, so either God didn't mean what he first said, or God didn't quite think through the order in which he said those things, right? Either God's playing loose with language, and I don't don't believe that God does that, or the the prohibition on eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is, is far more like a fast, far more like a waiting, right? And, and this is biblically bared out throughout Scripture. Later on in Scripture, especially in the, in the literature, both the historical books and the books of wisdom that involve kingship, kings are known for being those who discern between good and evil. Solomon literally prays, God, give me the knowledge of the good and evil that I may govern this, your great people. Uh, the wise woman of Tekoa tells the king, truly the Lord has given you the gift of knowing between good and evil. Um, you can think of Hebrews, right? True discernment, true knowledge is knowing difference between good and evil. Um, and so, you know, throughout Scripture, knowing the, good and e- the difference between good and evil is not a qualitatively bad thing. It's just not something that Adam and Eve were ready for. They needed to fast for it. And this is not unlike so many other things that the rest of us do when we have kids. I can't wait for the day that my kids can drive themselves to their own activities. And I am not handing my five-year-old son the keys to the minivan, right? He must wait for it until he's grown up and can do it. And so the whole Christian cycle of the year is is a mix of feasts and fasts that aren't about fasting from bad things. You never fast from bad things, right? I'm fat, you know, I had somebody once come to me and say, I'm struggling with smoking marijuana. I've decided to go on a fast from marijuana. No, you you can't fast from things you're not supposed to do, right? You can't fast from lust or anger. Um, You can fast from good things so that God builds up maturity in your life and then he gives you back the things you fasted from so that you can experience them in a more glorious, mature, and unidolatrous state. So every year for 40 days, I'm not eating meat and I'm not having alcohol and I'm not having sweets. It's like a great cleanse in the middle of God's year. And it's not because meat or sweets or alcohol are bad. It's because they're really good. And I want to I continue to have them without them being idols in my life. And so all of God's 
the, the, the order of the world is built around these times of fasting and feasting. And then when we get to the feast, God gives us back everything once again. Uh, God gives us back his world. And then we transform it into something called a meal. Um, human beings are unique. Animals eat all the time. Animals don't have meals, right? Humans do this thing where we take God's whole world and we turn it into a kind of meal and we worship with him. I've said a lot of things. I'm not sure if I answered your question. Could you walk us through some other examples of feasting where we, where we actually see um, this is actually a pretty big theme in scripture? Yeah, it's great. So yeah, I've given the example of like the Garden of Eden. God creates the world, gives it to them as a feast. Uh, we've talked about um, when Noah emerges from the ark, he lays a sacrifice. And, and we, we, we've gotten in a weird way um, of thinking about sacrifices uh, in contemporary times that's largely influenced by um, weird contemporary anthropology studies of ancient cultures, but it's not actually arising from really reading the Bible. Whenever, most of the time, most of the time, not all the time, most of the time where we see a sacrifice occur in the Old Testament between God and his people, we should read that as a meal, right? So minus the sin off, the whole burnt offering, you would go to Yahweh's house if you're an Israelite and you would bring uh, uncooked and undedicated food to the brazen altar, big, holy barbecue pit that takes away sin and transforms lives in the outer court. And above you, Yahweh's Shekinah glory, the pillar of fire, the cloud, you know, um, by day and the fire by night, dwelling over the heart of the tabernacle, uh, um, so to speak, above you in the air. Uh, and the priest would take the food that you brought, dedicate it on the altar, cook it on the altar, transform it on the altar. A lot of the ones that we ate would be raised or heaved, or we, we translate like wave offerings in them, waved in the air. Why in the air? Because there's your kind of clouds right there, right? Waved in the air and given back to you, and then you would eat in Yahweh's presence. So much of the tabernacle system concerns itself with eating with Yahweh. And most, most Christians in America are blind to that. We read it as this weird kind of moral currency exchange with Yahweh, where we barter with him with the death of animals for a kind of imputed righteousness. And we don't, while that might be a part of it, we don't read it fundamentally as God wanting to eat with us in the midst of our brokenness and sin while we waited for the coming of the Messiah. Um, and so then you come, yeah, to people like... Uh, uh, in in uh, David's life, David shows up, and when the ark reaches Jerusalem, this is Second Samuel chapter 6, uh, David shows up, and what does he do? He shows up, and uh, the ark arrives, and he dances. And we make the whole sermon about the dancing of David and Michal's curse and stuff like that. And that's, that's fine. It does happen. But we miss the part where David invites all of Israel <laughs> into Jerusalem. I mean, think about the economic cost of this. And with the royal treasury, invites everyone to eat of the fellowship sacrifices. And then sends everybody home with raisin cakes and food and wine and portions of grain. This is an, an amazing feast because Yahweh's ark, his throne, has arrived in Jerusalem. 
Uh, this helps us understand that we're going, I guess, backwards technically. This helps us understand like the Ruth and Boaz story. How do we know that Boaz is a kind of messianic figure, a kind of bridegroom Christ, a, 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 a widowed and desolate Gentile woman comes into Israel believing in the promises of the God of Israel and she's met by a land-owning kind of baron, a kind of king, a bridegroom king who witnesses her, sees her faith, goes to her and says, come and eat at my table with me, eat of my bread and dip your bread into the wine at my table and then sends her home carrying grain with her. This is another picture of feasting where God's being faithful with his promises. And so then uh, this uh, prepares us well for to see in the exile. Um, one of the major themes in the exile is how do God's people eat when they're in exile? You can think of Daniel and his friends saying, no, we're not going to eat at the king's table. And that's not because they're being seditious or because they're sort of proto-vegans. Um, it, it's because they're saying, we feast at the table of the king of Israel. And we're not going to partake of these, this kind of eating. This, uh, and the eating at the king's table wasn't just about meat. It was about the kind of eating and drinking that happened, which was orgiastic, which was formative. It, it structured the political system. Um, it was also worshipful. It was kind of, you were eating off of cult sacrifices. So you were, you were dedicating food to other gods and then eating it. And it was also the kind of political eating that Jesus condemns in the Gospels, where where you sat at the king's table uh, set you in a political ranking order. And Daniel and his friends deny that. We, we eat at the table of the king of Israel. This is another instance. You can think of feasting also uh, later in the book of Daniel with the feast of Belshazzar. Uh, Bel Belshazzar? Belshazzar, uh, where uh, sort of right before Babylon collapses and the Medes and the Persians are out, literally outside the gates, right? Um, we know from other ancient writings that what the Persians and Medes did is they, uh, a commander named Ugbaru, dammed the river uh, north of Babylon, and so the river dried up, and so the Persians and Medes were literally, while Belshazzar is feasting, walking through the sewers and invading the city of Babylon. And they see the handwriting on the wall, um, mene, mene, tekel, uparasin. And they bring Daniel in to translate it, right? And this is a sort of inverted feasting. Um, Yahweh enacts judgment at eating too, right? Um, they've, they've taken the bowls and chalices from Yahweh's house. And they're drinking out of them as if they're Yahweh. They've conquered Yahweh. And God says, no, this is my cups and my bowls. You don't get to do this. Um, and this is up for Jesus. And Jesus always shows up. Um, and he's eating and drinking with sinners. His first miracle is turning many gallons of water into many gallons of wine. And uh, all throughout his ministry, he eats and he drinks. And not only that, when Jesus shows up in the New Testament, he's in Jerusalem and he's having these big confrontations with uh, Pharisees. Those confrontations often happen during big communal feast days. Right? So everybody's feasting. Uh, and so just like Belshazzar, not only does God like to feast with us and eat with us, judgment happens at feasting. God kind of sh shows up and renders a verdict uh, while we feast. Looking at the um, end of the canon, end, end of Holy Scripture, where do we see 
that same theme pop up. Yeah. So all throughout the New Testament, uh, the disciples are called to eat and to feast together. Um, you know, picking up in Luke 24, uh, Jesus is revealed to his disciples after his resurrection. And they, the disciples who see him at the road to Emmaus run to Jerusalem and their phrases, we knew Christ, we, we knew him in the breaking of bread. Right? Christ was revealed to us, Christ was made known to us in the breaking of bread. So then even from the beginning of the rest of the later New Testament, Jesus is the one who's revealed in the breaking of bread. This is why the disciples not only gather to break bread at the Lord's table on the Lord's day, um, but also like Acts chapter 2, and they committed themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the prayers, and to the breaking of bread in homes. Um, so all throughout the New Testament, people are also feasting both at the Lord's table and then also together in their homes. All throughout their homes, they're feasting together. Uh, Paul goes up on Simon the Tanner's house while they're preparing food for him. Right? And the vision that he receives of the Gentiles coming to the kingdom, it's not without accident that that comes to him while he's preparing to have a feast. And the men from Cornelius come to him and they invite him to Cornelius' house and they welcome him and they bring him in. And the canon of scripture ends with um, the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, we are all directed sort of narratively to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The, the true and forever feast that all feasts are kind of pointing towards. Yeah, and I mean, just another one um, that pops up to mind. You know, you talked about uh, the Emmaus Road. Yeah. And then um, when uh, Jesus uh, was raised from the dead and he uh, eats with his disciples and, you know, I think it's fish, right? And uh, yeah, Give me fish, yeah, yeah, yeah. What's that? Yeah, he says, do you have any broiled fish? Yeah, yeah. and, um, you know, the way I've heard it, and I think uh, it may have been Chris Bruno who first, like, confirmed this um, for me, but um, <clears throat> we, we think of it as, like, oh, he, yeah, he's a real human. He's a, a, a resurrected human. He's eating fish, right? Spirits don't eat, right? Yeah, yeah. And, no, it's the, the picture of in the dawning of new creation, right? Jesus is ra was raised from the dead and he feasts with his disciples. Yeah. And so we, we get this picture of new creation feasting mm -hmm. at the resurrection. Um, you mentioned it about uh, the Lord's Supper, communion. And so uh, depending on how churches, um, whether they practice it once a month or every single Sunday um, or whatever their um, repetition is, how should Christians view the Lord's table, the, the Lord's supper, communion as feasting? Uh, you know, I think one, and this is going to maybe sound sort of like tongue in cheek, but I don't, I don't, I mean it very seriously. Uh, the church needs to be careful that we do. There are two things that Jesus said: do this, right? Make disciples and baptize them, and do this in remembrance of me, right? And I, I just believe that churches, we need to be faithful to that. We need to do the things that Jesus explicitly told us before he died, do these things, right? Um, and the Lord's Supper is one of them. Uh, and so one, I think, I just think it, we got to reckon with it as a kind of act of obedience. Um, two, I think if we understand the Lord's Supper not as this random thing that's kind of confusing and we're not sure why Jesus has us do it, but if we can read the Lord's Supper as a part of this whole Bible story where the God of the Bible is always inviting us to eat with him. 
He invited us to eat in the beginning. We said, no, we ate with the serpent. All throughout the Old Testament, he was calling us to sacrifices and feasts to eat with us. Uh, all throughout the New Testament, he ate and drank with sinners. And he gave us this meal, bread and wine, done in the name of Jesus, as the mark of our eating with him in the New Covenant. And it's, and it's obvious that this was the custom um, of even the later New Testament, because St. Paul in 1 Corinthians says, what I received I give to you on the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread, right? So it's, it's there, it's not just a gospel thing, it's Pauline as well, this is what we're supposed to do. Uh, what I think that does is it helps to center a little bit what is church about, why do we go to church, right? What, what happens at church that I can't just stream online? Uh, well, I can't eat with people online. Um, I, that needs to be done in person. Um, we wouldn't, uh, if you Zoomed called me and you had Taco Bell and I took the Zoom call somewhere else and I had thought, we, w we would say that we had a great call, but we would not describe that as eating together, right? Um, God calls us to his house. We hear his word. We confess our sins. We, we uh, receive the promise of his forgiveness. We hear the word of God preached. We, are, we live in peace with one another and we eat food from his table and we sing his praises. And then we leave from his house commissioned for the mission of Jesus. This is Christian worship. Um, when we get away from this, when we get away from the table, it kind of uh, scatters what we think we're doing on Sunday. Do we just go to church to sing songs? Do we go to church just to hear the sermon? What is, what is the center? What is the climax of worship? What is church for? Um, and so, uh, yeah, then the sermon kind of tends to become a lecture uh, and the songs become kind of primarily about cultivating personal experiences. Um, but if we make it about eating with Jesus, then, then it may, becomes m much more of a social and corporate event. And I think that there's a lot of conversation among Anglicans and among the Reformed and even among Catholics, um, things that even divide re Reformed people from Catholic people about like the substances, what happens to the bread and wine, what happens um, to the sort of atomic material of communion. And I, I think it misses the social and uh, communal and personal aspect of Holy Communion. I, I'm of the opinion that Sub substantively, the bread and the wine are still bread and wine. I believe Jesus is present in them. Um, we can debate that. But regardless, what the New Testament largely talks about with that is that we're communing with the person of Jesus and we're communing with one another. We're becoming one. We're one body. We who are many have become one body, one loaf, as we eat and drink with Jesus. And I think that... Uh, that helps us figure out more why is the center. It, we come to God's house to eat and drink with him. It'd be weird if I invited you or your family to my house between 4.30 and 7.30, right? You guys would expect a meal. And we just sat quietly in chairs and talked. We said, well, it's been great getting dinner with you guys. You'd be like, well, no, Mark, we didn't get dinner, <laughs> right? Um, that time is set aside for, okay, we're going to the Brian's house at five. We should have dinner. Um, Likewise, we go, God invites us to his house every week to eat with him and to leave nourished for the really hard work of the kingdom Monday through Saturday.
Yeah, and I mean, just um, this is something that I I, I have conviction for. Um, I mean, this just gives more reason why we should celebrate communion and partake of communion every Lord's Day, in in my opinion. Um, And in speaking about communion um, and feasting, uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 says, you know, whenever you partake of this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so feasting really has a hopeful element to it. And so, yeah, could you just make a few comments on how feasting actually helps us live with hope? Yeah. Um, yeah. So feasting with Jesus in, with, and under the sacraments, so in bread and wine, um, is both real and also points beyond itself to when we don't feast with Jesus in sacraments, but we eat with Jesus face to face, right? The, the hope of every Christian is being able to see Jesus face to face and eat with him face to face at the marriage supper of the Lamb. I mean, heck, if, if it is coming, if the future, if all of this is about anything other than eating face to face with Jesus, if I don't get to see Jesus face to face, what are we doing? Uh, and every week I, I come to the Lord's table to partake of bread and wine and to eat with Jesus, to give him my life, this is evangelical language, and to receive from him his life. Um, and, and we do that in the meal. I give him my life, he gives me his. I give him my sin, he gives me his righteousness. And every week I'm renewed and I rejoice. And that doesn't, even though that's real, it points beyond itself to the fulfillment of that exchange of a day where, where his righteousness will be mine all the way through. And I will see him face to face. And I will be changed and I will be like him in glory. And I will exchange this mortal body for an incorruptible one. And a way to think about this is again with the analogy of a, of a meal. Um, uh, so if I, if I invite you to my house for dinner and I give you a really good appetizer, right? The best sort of poo-poo platter you can imagine. Uh, for the mainlanders, poo-poo is appetizer. Yeah, poo-poo is appetizer, yeah. Uh, well, for mainlanders, what we mean in Hawaii by good poo-poos is like what is appetizers times 10. I mean, we're going we're gonna to fill you up, right? If you're going to come for heavy poo-poos, you better like come with you know, sweatpants or something. You know? We're going to fill you up before the, full, the whole meal, right? Um, I feel like on the mainland, appetizers make you hungry for the meal. In Hawaii, in Hawaii poo-poos are like a first course, right? Um, but yeah, so if I, if I give you appetizers, if I give you poo-poos, um, you can go, oh my gosh, this is so delicious. And you might look at my wife and say, Rachel, thank you so much. And then she'd respond, wait, there's more where that came from. Oh, really? This isn't real? Well, no, this is real food. This is, this is real. And it should lead you to even greater things, right? And so I'd say the Lord's table is like that. It's a sign. It's a foretaste. It's a shadow. It's real. We really are communing with our Lord. And it can point us beyond itself. Wait, wait, says the Holy Spirit. There's more where that came from, right? You will eat with him and drink with him in the kingdom. And so in that way, it's sort of a, a delightful foretaste. 
Yeah. Well, um, thank you again, Mark. Uh, I really appreciated you taking time to talk to us about, uh, about feasting today. And I guess I just have one more just kind of bonus question. Um, th- th- this, this new year, I'm going to be having a classics theology reading group following what the Center for Baptist Renewal did a couple years ago, um, where we just work through old theological books that are seminal, have had a significant influence throughout the history of the church. And so I guess my question for you is, what is one classical theological work that you believe Christians should pick up and read? Yeah, uh, that's a great um, I'll give you my answer, and if you don't think it counts in your, uh, according to the categories you've given me. Well, this is uh, this is up to you. Okay. Yeah, I would say, I mean, one thing that's been super fruitful for me, and I would give it out, especially for people that are thinking through, how do I preach? And for those people that do communion every week, how do I preach and then do communion? How are those two actions together? One thing that's been super fruitful for me as a preacher, and as somebody who thinks through how to preach before doing communion, um, the sermons of Lancelot Andrews, who is... 17th century, right? Early 1600s uh, has been super formative for me Um, because what he always does is he connects the word of God that we're preaching with the word of God who is Jesus himself, with the word of God that is given to us in bread and wine, uh, with the word of God that grips our hearts and for those who are not baptized and can't receive the Lord's Supper compels us to come forward and receive the gospel, which is the proclamation of the word of God, who is Jesus Christ, right? So his, his way of thinking through all these things, his way of reading the scriptures, super fruitful for me. If that doesn't count because it's kind of post-Reformation, then my, uh, my second answer would just be the sermons of St. Augustine, like the homilies of St. Augustine. The confessions are great. De Ternitate is great. Augustine is best when he's preaching. Well, again, uh, Mark, thank you so much for taking time out of your day and coming and uh, talking to me and our listeners about feasting with God. Well, we hope you've enjoyed this episode of my conversation with Mark Brines on feasting with God. If you want to hear more episodes like this, go ahead and follow or subscribe to get notified when we put out more episodes like this one. We hope this conversation will help you and others grow in faith, hope, and love as we await the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. We hope you have a great day, and thanks for listening.